Heavy Cardboard, Episode 41, Lignum. All right, I bet you weren't expecting to hear my voice do the introduction, but here's why. There was a little snafu with Edward's microphone for the beginning portion of this episode, so I decided, hey, I've never done the introduction before. I'm going to go ahead and record that part. Put in this little blurb just to warn you guys that uh, I'm going to do my best with the sound quality, but there are technical difficulties with Edward's microphone. So let's get on with the show then, shall we? Coming to you from the Denver Audiology Clinic. Welcome to Heavy Cardboard, where we talk medium and heavy strategy board games, war games, 18xx, and other related topics in the board gaming hobby. We're your hosts. I'm Edward. And I'm Tony. And listening to us is better than listening to your tinnitus. How do people get in contact with Heavy Cardboard? First off, our website, heavycardboard.com. We're super active on Twitter, at Heavy Cardboard. Facebook, Heavy Cardboard. Email us. We love hearing from y'all. Contact at heavycardboard.com. Last but not least, BGG Guild number 2044. Come join the conversation. Heavy Cardboard thanks the great people at Game Surplus for their sponsorship of our show. They have an awesome reputation and a fantastic inventory of games. Their tagline is the home of great games at great prices. So check them out at www.gamesurplus.com. You can reach them via email at games at gamesurplus.com and tell them Heavy Cardboard sent you. Wow, we're at 100 ratings on iTunes now. So thank you to those that have left ratings and a special thank you to just a ton of y'all that have left us reviews. Since just last episode, we've had upwards of 15 uh, people leave us reviews. So thank you. And the amazing folks who have left us those reviews, in no particular order, we have Corn Love Train. Nice. The guy who knows what's up. This is a deal breaker. Dugrex, Concrete 62, BG Tater, Corey Key 212, Eric Austin Lee, Eurogamer, No Guide, and Mike Potts. And then we have the international reviews. Flying Women, Four Wire, and Richard Tempura. That's an amazing amount of reviews left for us since last episode. So I I triple dog dare you guys and gals to match that same amount. So if you haven't left us a review, get out there and do it. It's greatly, greatly appreciated. Yeah, thanks for those notes. So we have a contest. We do. So last episode, I mentioned that I'd recently received my copy of A Game of Gnomes from Fragger Games. Well, it came to me with a, the box was a bit crushed and, you know, the components were in perfect condition, but the box was a little smushed. So I emailed Fun Again, who was the uh, fulfillment uh, guys for Fragger Games, which was the Wilmot Brothers. And instead of just sending a replacement box, they sent me a whole new copy of the game, which arrived in perfect condition. So I emailed them and said, hey, guys, I only asked for the box. And they said, nope, we wanted to do right. And I was like, wow, okay. So I'll pay it forward on the show. And they said, do whatever you want with it. And I said, all right, cool. So I'm going to pay it forward. Since they went above and beyond, I figured, you know, that'd be cool. I mean, it's $115 I paid for my copy. So I thought it'd be a cool little you know, pay it forward. Anyway. Now, wait a minute. You say crushed. I, I saw the box. I mean, we're, we're, not, we're talking like some caving on the front here, the front cover. I don't want people to think that you're giving them a game that's in a basically in a destroyed box. No, no. It's just, I agreed. And just because it was a 
fairly expensive game. I just wanted a yeah. one that was in better condition. And so I, I didn't expect them to send the whole game. Anyway, to enter to get my second copy with the Ding Dub box, but perfect components, email us, contact at heavycardboard.com, and tell us why we should send you the game. It's obviously not our usual fare, as it's a really light game, but the components are, as Fragger Games is known for, incredible resin pieces, and it'd be great to play with younger kids who are just getting into the hobby or just as a collector piece. So, now, it is a really big box. It's 14 inches by 12 inches by 7 inches, and it weighs a good bit, so it's not going to be cheap to mail. So, this is open to anybody worldwide, and I'll say, how about we throw the first $15 of the shipping, whoever enters and gets selected as the winner, pays the difference. That sound fair to you, T? It does indeed, sir. Cool. All right. So, the Denver Broncos are in the Super Bowl, baby. Peyton Manning, he's writing that fairy tale. Dude, this whole town is nuts right now. The, it's the team bus was in a car accident in San Francisco today. But was it? No one was hurt, so that was a good thing. Okay, well, that's good. <laughs> so more or less a fender bender. Yeah, yeah. So I started uh, Weight Watchers a week ago today. Well, I, should, I say I did, but actually it was Amanda and I both did. And weigh-in day is each Sunday. So yesterday, weighed in after a week of doing this. And I lost 2.4 pounds. Mm -hmm. Amanda lost 2.8. Right on. So far, so good. And I'm excited. But Amanda's excited about it as well. I really wanted to make that corn bisque from the Paul Prudhomme Fork in the Road cookbook. But there was just no time. Sounds delicious. It, well, it, Sounds it's, delicious. It's amazing. And there's just nothing in it. <laughs> Mate. I think that's how you pronounce that. I think so. It's not mate. But it had the little umlaut or... or it, he's from Hungary, but if it was if he was from Australia, it might be mate. But, <laughs> but I think it's Matei. He uh, he sent us an email and he asked to send the the Tinner's Trail variant for the external investments table to him. He wanted to try it that you made, right? So he tried it. He played sounds like several games with it, and uh, was pretty happy about it. And uh, he and you convinced me to post it to. Uh, BGG. So I posted it to the Tinner's Trail variants uh, in the file section and uh, put a link in the guild. So if you like Tinner's Trail and you are like uh, Edward and myself and Mate, you think that the external investments table is a little bland, give it a whirl. So last plug here. Uh, or last plug. Who am I kidding? I'll do this every episode. Shirts, we still have some, especially if you're a plus-size model like myself, i.e. extra large and, and, and above. We're going to get a small handful of more shirts uh, before we change the design. So if you want the first run of heavy cardboard t-shirts, now is a good time to order them. $25 on the site helps us help you help us with the show. So the Kickstarter for the deluxe edition of Venus uh, went live late, late last week. I mean, we've been talking to, to Vital, and he we're going to have an interview with him here upcoming. I'm excited yep. about that. But $100 for this edition of Venus. For the neutered edition of Venus. Yeah. No, I'll... Uh, I'll, I'll let someone else buy it, and I'll, I'll give it a try, but that's just too rich for me. Yeah, totally. No need. I prefer the old copy. 
So this might be obvious to you and the listeners, but it just occurred to me yesterday when talking with Amanda about the show and just stuff in general here. It occurred to me that you and I are the main teachers of games in our group, right? Right. Do you think it directly correlates to us doing the show and our reviews and maybe how natural it comes to you and I because of the fact that we teach games so regularly? Uh, Amanda said, obviously, and I was like, it never occurred to me. Maybe. I think it's just the fact that um, uh, we. I think we both have leadership personalities and that, that infers certain things. That causes certain things to happen, you know, like – we do the show, we teach games, we, you know, do things like that. I, that's what I think it is. Okay. I just, I found that interesting. It kind of stuck with me and I was like, huh, I kind of wanted to ask you. And I figured why not ask you on the show right tonight. On, right on. All right. So last bit of news uh, here and it's significant news. Yes, it is. It's about our buddy Clay from Capstone Games. Uh, they're the ones that are reprinting Arkwright later on uh, this year, and he's been kind enough to let us, well, spill the beans before the actual press release comes out. So if you're listening to this, the day it releases, which is Thursday, February 4th, we're recording this on Monday, February 1st, you are the first people to know the details of what the reprint for Arkwright's going to entail. So Tony... Why don't you tell the folks? Sure, man. Um, Arkwright is, if you recall, a finalist for the Portuguese Game of the Year, and it also won the prestigious Heavy Cardboard Golden Elephant Award for being the best heavy board game of 2014. Uh, This edition of Arkwright is going to be, frankly, an even better edition than the first edition. There's some small stuff being fixed. The errors on the player board, for example. The language in the rules is being cleaned up. But the game itself is not changing. However, it is being expanded a bit. You know that there's the spinning Jenny and the water frame modules, and then after the fact, the spinning mule module came out. And all of those modules are just basically increases in the levels of the depth and the weight of the game. Two new modules are going to be in this edition of Arkwright. The first one introduces a few elements on top of the water frame. Uh, we were able to look at an advanced copy of the rules, you and I, and... Uh, For me, I have to say I'm about 80% pumped about the new module that's called the self-actor. There's some uh, bonus stuff going on in there that I'm not sure um, fits into my wheelhouse. Kind of achievement tile-ish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like, I'm willing to try and see what it does, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not for me. But the other little aspects of this module, new events and things like that, I want to play them maybe even without the bonus stuff. They sound really cool to me. The second module is a stock market module, and this one, dude, has me really excited. It could be added to the other modules, and it basically puts some interesting stock market options on the table. I'm just going to say this one thing. You can finally cross-invest in other companies. Yeah, man. I'm super stoked about that. I'm really happy to hear that. I can see the little intricacies spinning in my head here. Lastly, obviously, uh, we're fans of the game, so we're glad to see it coming back into print. We're also glad to know that the Heavy Cardboard Golden Elephant Award logo is going to be on the back of the box. This has been in discussion for a couple of months with Clay uh, over there at Capstone Games. He's a fan of the show and of what we do. 
and we're a fan of Arkwright. Dude, when, when I got that email, I did a little happy dance, I had a fist pump. I was I was super stoked when, when I heard the news, and I feel like this is a, a significant milestone for us in the show and, and just in general. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm really, really excited and really proud of that. So yeah, we're we're definitely flattered. We're not going to let that color our opinion of the new edition of the game. And Capstone knows that. Clay's Clay's a good man. Look, man, this is an amazing award-winning heavy economic game. We're not shilling it. We're fans of the game. So go back, listen to episode 15, check out our review, and keep an ear out for the pre-orders. They'll be coming up very soon. All right, Tony. Anything you've acquired since the last episode, sir? I have acquired three games sir three games all right maybe i should say i've acquired two and my wife has acquired one pasha which is a little yahtzee dice game arrived today for robin cable car which is basically metro with stock shares for a scoring variant i thoroughly enjoyed our tag team play of that yeah that was cool uh 1860 railways on the isle of Wight, which came in with the little historical train expansion too so that was kind of cool cool what about you? What, what have you acquired? Uh, well, I have four games. It was three until uh, just a couple hours ago. Uh, so the first one, I uh, got my copy of Hospital Connect, which is oh. uh, Thomas Spitzer's The Third Game in the Cold Trilogy, the one by Quinnick Games. I picked I that up. I try that. Yeah, I do too. I picked that up last weekend from him. He was, uh, he was awesome enough to... Uh, to Back the he got the Carson City, but I asked him if I could piggyback to get the Hospital Connect, and he would he was cool enough to do that. So thank you very much. Um, that was Dave, if I didn't mention same guy as yeah. I, I was about to ask who who did that. Yeah, it was Dave, Buffalo uh, Dave. Yep, Buffalo Dave. <laughs> also got a second edition of the War Frog edition of Age of Steam from my yeah. our good buddy Paul Chad. Thank you very much, PC. Included in that was the number four expansion map of France and Italy. That was cool. Nice little bonus. Completely unexpected. He knew that I wanted that, and he he thinks that the uh, the Eagle Griffin version is a bastardization because it has plastic trains instead of the wooden yeah. discs for trains. You know me on my Warfrog Tree Frog collection, so getting this is is something I wanted. So I'm really excited about that. Well, you know, I I had an old edition of. Uh... Steam. I just used the disc from Steam and threw Steam away and put that in, in Age of Steam. Nice. And last but not least, uh, like I said just a couple hours ago, my P500 of Silent Victory, U.S. Submarines in the Pacific, a solo game uh, similar to the Hunters. But the Hunters, you're a uh, U-boat commandant, whereas this, you're a U.S. submarine captain in the Pacific. So, yeah, I... Uh, it's it's one of the games that was on the anticipation list. And I'm, I'm assuming even though you've had some arrivals, you still have some anticipations? Yeah, it's called The List. However, <laughs> the anticipation list is basically what's on my list. But I did P500 a few games from GM, GMT that are on that list. Uh, 1846. I thought I'd already done that, but apparently I hadn't. But I've rectified that now. Cataclysm, a Second World War, uh, I pre-ordered on the P500, as well as Comancheria, the Comanche Empire, Enemy Coast Ahead, the Doolittle Raid, and 
probably one of, if not the most anticipated game ever for me, one of, if not the one, Mr. President, which I thought I'd already P500 and I hadn't. So again, rectified that as well. <laughs> also, so how about you? Anything uh, on your extensive list, sir? Well, uh, it's not very extensive, but um, after a couple of uh, BGG auctions, I find my PayPal account to be flush. So I flushed it, and uh, I ordered uh, 18 Max in 1889. I heard about that from Chad yesterday. I'm excited. I'm glad you got 18 Max because, as you know, that's one of my favorite uh, 1830 yeah. clones. Well, that, you know, you, your recommendation is why, so thank you. Also, um, I, I would love to get a hold of a copy of SNCF, the Netherlands, but, man, that is just impossible. So, listeners, if if you have a copy you're willing to sell or trade, look me up, please. So, uh, what have you been playing, sir? Not a lot by way of variety, but a lot in these titles. So, obviously, Lignum and Signori. I've played both those games multiple times. Lignum I played a lot, getting ready for the review, plus I just really enjoyed the game. We played Codenames for the first time at game day on Saturday, and that was a blast. I, I realized that I very much prefer to be the code or the, uh, the clue giver yeah. as opposed to the clue guesser, because I, I, I go down tangents that aren't intended when I'm guessing, and that's not good for anybody. So Paul Chad, man, he likes two, ty two types of games. Heavy economic brain burners and silly party games. Yep, yeah, Facts and Five and stuff like that. Time's Up. He's introduced us to code names and so many other really fun, stupid games. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I knew that I would enjoy code names when I finally got around to playing it. Uh, our buddy Paul Grogan from Gaming Rules, he ran like a, uh, what they're calling a LARP kind of a live codename thing at BGG kind of was like five, 10 minutes and it was pretty silly and a lot of fun from everything I heard. So if he does it next year, hoping to get in on that look like a lot of fun. Anyway, one last game that uh, white elephant type thing, or, you know, just super rare that I can get this played here in Denver. And that's reef encounter. Amanda was a team player and endured the play, man, how she hates that game. She tried. God bless her. She, she, you. she tried a second time to play it. This was her second play. And yeah, that's probably her last play. And I, I won't subject her to it in the future. But man, I got to find other people in our group that will play that game because I really like that game. So how about you, man? Well, uh, you mentioned our dual play of cable car i've played it a few other times obviously but it was really fun we just kind of took turns taking turns and uh yeah it, definitely the the cool thing about cable car with the scoring variant is it makes a player be it makes a player have a vested interest in one to four companies usually three or four instead of just one so that's really really cool i've really enjoyed that I, i'm going to actively look for a copy right on Alhambra played more of that with the wife. If you recall, I beat her last time. This time, <laughs> we tied. I've never seen that before, but uh, I must be getting better at Alhambra. Did you plant a tree? No. <laughs> seven Wonders Duel. We've we've been playing a lot of that. Like almost every night, the wife's like, "Can we play Seven Wonders tonight?" Uh, 
so that was, that's that's kind of cool. Are you enjoying it as much as she is? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I get the taste of Seven Wonders in 15 minutes. Cool. SNCF, John Borer and Queen Games gave us permission to distribute that map at HeavyCon, so that's a go. Been playing a lot of that. I think I've played it like 25 friggin' times now because my son Chris, every time he comes over, which is every Sunday, we got to play it at least three times. He's just addicted to SNCF. Right. That's really, really cool. Now, are you talking specifically the map that you made or just yeah. maps in general? That map. Okay. St. Petersburg did a five-player session. A couple of new players. They both uh, dug the game and would play it again, naturally. Downfall of Pompeii, no thanks. Always fun stuff. So this one was kind of weird. Age of Steam zombie apocalypse map. I, I was a little worried, you know. It's like, okay, this is a serious game. And zombies. What the hell? But, yeah, I, it worked really well. I'm a zombie movie fan, so I was game anyway. But, uh, yeah... The zombies start in a couple locations, and they just spread out across across the map, and they cause the cubes and the cities to disappear, man. And it just causes the economy to kind of uh, degrade and challenges the players. And But you get to re-urbanize the cities that the zombies have already thrashed through. It was really fun. I would play it again. It worked. It was silly, but it worked. I'm anxious to... I'm hoping that in our regiment that, that Chad has put together, yeah. I'm hoping that, that it, if it's not part of it, at least can become a part of the regiment before we review Age of Steam. Oh, yeah, it's got to be. And then the last thing on my list was Stevenson's Rocket. It's an old Kinesia from 1999. It was really pretty interesting. The way the mergers work and the auction, that is the vetoing of the train movement. Uh, now that I have a play-in, I'm really looking forward to doing it again because I, I think I have a clue of what to do. But, you know, when you go into that game, it's like, what? Huh? Huh? And then you figure it out like three quarters through. So Another I need to play. I wanted to take a couple of moments and talk about a buddy of mine's venture that he started a little while back. I met Chad, one of the plethora of Chads, from Paul Chad's group of friends back in Kansas City about two years ago at BGGCon in a game of Democker. We've stayed in touch ever since. Well, since then, he's started up BoardGameTables.com. If you were fortunate enough to be at BGGCon last year, there's no doubt that you noticed the gaming tables up at the front of the main gaming hall. Some of you may have even had the opportunity to play on one of those or multiple tables during the con. I was fortunate enough to play on them and for a few different games. And afterward, I had a hard time going back to a quote-unquote normal table. Everything from the convenient cup holders, which we all know how invaluable those can be to protect, your, say, your copy of Food Chain Magnate, to how easily and comfortable my arm rested on the rails, legitimately made me want to own one of my own. Handcrafted and made in Joplin, Missouri by Master Craftsman? Let's face it, none of us needs a gaming table, but most of us want one. And yes, there are companies out there that charge an arm and a leg for one. Thankfully, Chad only charges a leg. <laughs> Seriously though, go check them out over at BoardGameTables.com. And I think you'll really be happy with what you find. And as always, tell them you heard about them from Heavy Cardboard. Tony, let's go talk about some uh, some lighthouses in Brest. No, I'm kidding. I can't do that. <laughs> no, yes, you can. I'm leaving that in. Okay, it's on tape. On it's go on tape. It. You're done. I love lighthouses in Brest. But let's talk about the game Britannia. 
<laughs> wow. This part's more fun than the game. <laughs> Britannia is a 2015 release by Marco Pozzi. It's a two to four player game. Takes 90 to 120 minutes. Here's what's cooking in the game. You're building lighthouses on the coast of France. You're gathering resources through selection and trading slash purchasing with the game. And you spend these resources to build the different levels of the lighthouses. The lighthouses, of which there are 15 in a four-player game, come in three types based on their difficulty to build them. Heaven, Purgatory, and Hell are the difficulty categories of these lighthouses in the game. And lighthouses take about three to four levels to build them, depending on the difficulty level. In addition to the resources that are required to build a level, each lighthouse requires a different mix of one to three additional resources when you're building onto the lighthouse, including wood for the scaffolding when you're building levels higher than the first. I, I really thought that was a nice thematic touch, actually. Weather in the game will affect your construction. Depending on the current weather and the difficulty of the lighthouse you're attempting to work on, you're going to need one to three engineers, which is basically another type of resource. Plus, one of your workers could get hurt. I thought that was kind of cool, too. And thematic. It makes sense. You're building in a storm. Hey, someone's going to you know fall down and get a boo-boo. Workers. When you build a level, you're eligible to place a number of workers of your color on that level. You can place one worker per resource you expended in the construction of that level. These workers are the source of points for you and everyone else that worked on that lighthouse once the lighthouse is completed. And this is based on who has the most workers in the lighthouse. You can always pull back workers for some quick VPs or just leave the workers there to participate in a majority battle when the lighthouse is done. The workers at that point allow you to play special cards to get more points. Not really going to go into the cards here. Suffice it to say, you get a bunch of cards, and they're a source of a bunch of points. Every card you play is going to cost you one of the workers that you've left on your lighthouse. After that, if you still have any workers left, you can put a worker in the harbor that's associated with that lighthouse. The worker that you place there remains in that harbor for the rest of the game, but it's going to provide a little bit of income for you at the beginning of every turn. And that, that could be pretty helpful. Finally, any workers remaining on the lighthouse earn their owners a victory point each, plus whoever has the most workers left on the lighthouse is going to get a bonus depending on the uh, difficulty of the lighthouse. You do that five times, and you've played Britannia. Let's talk a little bit about what's cool, not cool, weird, whatever. And um, the first thing that I'm going to say, and it's kind of weird, is heaven, hell, and purgatory? Yeah, I... I... I, I don't get it. I don't know why. That has nothing to do with the theme whatsoever. What happened to difficult, hard, and easy? Right? Or red, white, and blue, or whatever. Just weird. Hey, one thing that's cool about the game, and I feel like this the same thing about Shipyard, and I don't mean to compare these two games, obviously, but the tactile nature of like building the levels onto the lighthouse and putting your workers on them. It's kind of cool to see lighthouses get built, right? I like that kind of stuff. I, I love the theme. I am a, I don't know why I like lighthouses so much, but I really, right really on. do. Me too. Um, and I, when I first heard about this game, I was like, dude, that's a cool theme. I was, I was mildly interested in this, uh, because this came out at Essen last year so I was I was really excited that you got a copy of this. I was like, cool, let's check this out. You know, when we checked it out, the rule book was uh, atrocious, though. 
the translation. That you took the literally took the word out of my mouth. I was just going to say atrocious. Hey, thanks but... to Ben Osteen, though, there's a workable translation. And then and from that, I made what I think is a, a pretty excellent cheat sheet. I, I played the game from that, you know, so. Yep. I thought you did well on that. And yeah, seriously, big props to Ben. Um, it's in the file section of Britannia on BGG for the rewrite. Really glad he did that. The majority placing worker stuff uh, does cause some player interaction. It's usually unwilling, but, um, <laughs> you know, you use your workers along with every other player to, to milk some points out of those lighthouses. No one should let you build a lighthouse by yourself, basically. The workers, I think, are an interesting currency in the game, actually. If you, you, you have some workers, you can get more. The way you place the workers to do trading or put them in the harbors or to build them on the lighthouse with the option to pull them right back. There's actually an interesting ebb and flow in the currency that is the workers. What exactly about Well, that? let's say uh, I have eight, right, at the beginning of the game. I might use one or two for trading, and then that leaves me with six to do um, some lighthouse building. So I might throw some guys on a lighthouse, but... If the player, other players will let me do it by myself, I might be able to pull some back on a, on a subsequent placement and use them again on the same turn. And it, it's really... Uh, the management, the management yeah, juggling. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we're, we are in agreement of that. For me, the universe of games fits pretty well on a bell curve. There's a segment of games that are really bad. There's a segment of games that are really special. But the lion's share of the games are somewhere in the middle. Some closer to either end of the curve, right? Not especially good, not especially bad. They're, as you're fond of saying, fine. They're okay. This is a highly tactical game, and it's pretty dull. It's not a hard game to play either. It's really easy to do stuff. You run out of resources. You do some trading. You get some more. You run out of... It's, it's not a difficult game. There's, just, there's no depth here in the gameplay. It's really just a, a project management style of planning that you have to accomplish and then the tactical lighthouse contributions. So for me, I'm going to, I'm give this game a rating of, of three, it, which is, you know, meh. It's, it's not a bad game. It has an audience, but for me, it's a game on a pile of games at the bottom half of that bell curve, baby. Only that worker mechanic do I think is interesting. So my copy, it'll be in my next auction later in the week. Ben's rules and my excellent cheat sheet are included at no extra charge. Wink. What do you think about it, Ed? I like the theme, and like you said, it has it has some some cool things in it. But ultimately, this game is guilty of being the worst thing that you could ever ever call a game. Uh oh, boring. In my opinion, there's no fix for boring. There's a fix for broken. There's a fix for bad rule book. There's a fix for all these other things, but there's just not a fix for boring. And I think that's the biggest indictment you can give a game. And personally, I think the game's just boring. Yep. Um, what was it you said? Uh, I think it was Francis Drake that you had mentioned. Oh, yeah. That you played the game once, but you played it multiple times. Three times. In one session. And that's exactly how this game feels. I feel like I played the game once, and I played it five times. I'm all set. I don't need to play it again. Or play it again. As far as a rating, I'm going to have to give it a 2. Because it's going to have its its fans out there, I'm sure. I know the guys over at Punching Cardboard. They like it. I don't see 
what the appeal is to this game. So maybe it's a it's not the game, maybe it's me. But yeah, as far as I'm concerned, it's a two. I'm all set. I don't need a copy. That's Britannia. All right, Tony, let's go back a few centuries and talk some signori. Andrea Chiarvesio and Pierluca Zizzi are the designers of Signori. These designers, and I want to mention this, have a full or shared design credit on games like Samurga, Asgard, Hyperborea, Kingsburg, Olympus, and Al Rashid. What's Your Game is the publisher. Full disclosure here, and a thank you to What's Your Game for providing Heavy Cardboard with a review copy. That doesn't color our opinions. Signori is a two to four player game. 30 to 45 minutes or so per player. Here's what's cooking in the game. Watch the gaming rules video <laughs> on how to play. <laughs> I'll, I'll, uh, I'm going to give a couple of uh, points here just for some context for our comments, of course. But, uh, yeah, Paul Grogan's gaming rules video is pretty awesome. The theme of this game is the drafting of dice and the placement of wooden tokens and the collection of cardboard tiles. Oh. Wait a minute, there's something about 15th century Italy. Uh, no. The theme of this game is the drafting of dice and the placement of wooden tokens and the collection of cardboard tiles. The theme is pasted on, guys, but you know what? We don't care. We care about the gameplay, right? Correct. So I mentioned the dice drafting. The dice drafting works like this. There's five colors of dice. One die per player per color are available in the game. They're rolled and they're set into the dice pool, and you start playing the turns. On your turn, you can draft one die from any of the colors, but through the course of the turn, you only get four dice, and you can only have one die per color. So of the five dice, you're only going to get four different ones. At most. At most, right. <laughs> so again, there's one die for each player, so you can always be assured you're going to get the color you want, but you can't be assured you're going to get the value on the die that you want. The dice, depending on their color, are going to cost one to five coins to place them into your player board, let's say. For example, the blue die costs five coins if you want to take it. But the value of the die is a discount against the price that you're going to pay. So the blue die costs five coins. But if it has a four on it, then I'm only paying the difference, one coin. If I take a five or a six, it's a free. But it's a five or a six. At the end of the round, if your total of your dice is 13 or less, you're going to qualify for an end-of-the-round bonus. So, depending on the values of the dice that you've drafted, you may desire to pass before you get to four dice. And that's what you meant by at most, right? Correct. There is also a way to spend meeples in the game so that you can allow yourself to exceed that 13-pip limit as well. The color of the dice depend determines what actions you can take. There's a menu of actions for each color, and each color has some secondary actions too. The secondary actions kind of work like a little game engine. There's three secondary actions for each color, and here's where it gets a little complicated. One of the actions you can take with a die of one color is to purchase, for coins, a secondary action of another color it, that you can then take when you select that color. A helper. A helper, that is correct. So when you take a die of a color that you have these helpers on, you could potentially get up to four actions for that die. So that's it's kind of an important way to get a little engine going and, and get your game rolling. There's also male and female meeples in the game, and no, they're not anatomically correct. The males 
can get trained in religious, political, and military pursuits and can be deployed to solve crises in those categories to earn victory points. Doing so allows you to collect a crest slash coat of arms tile. The females, they get married off into the various families on the board, and you must provide an ever-increasing dowry of money, but you do earn victory points for those dowries. And marrying off your, your, your females allows you to also collect a crest slash coat of arms tile. At the end of seven rounds, the game is over. You collect points for all the males that remain in the various education tracks, and then you collect some points for the various collections of family crest tiles that you've collected. Obviously, there's a bit more than that. Like I said, I just wanted to give some highlights that's going to set some context for what we talked about. So let's talk a little bit, Edward, about what's cool, not cool, and weird about Signore, shall we? Sure. The game board. It's kind of cheap. It's 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 warping and tearing. Yeah, so I actually reached out to What's Your Game on this before our review because I wanted to, you know, give them a fair chance to let us know, hey, maybe the the factory they chose to use was different or maybe they did some cost-cutting measures or something like that. And they responded, no, nothing's changed. So they were like, thanks for the heads up. First off, we apologize that you had issues with it. Secondly, uh, thanks for the heads up and that they will uh, they will contact the the factory and address it going forward. So I'm willing to give them a, a, a pass on this. But going forward, if we see it's a trend going into, you know, the, the games here for 2016, then, yeah, then maybe I'm not getting the full story. But as it is right now, I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. Don't want to beat a dead horse, but I saw it in Zanguo and Nippon too, so... My book, Three's a Trend. The dice drafting in this game, it's really done right, man. And that this is me talking. Dice. I like that in this game. I, I, I think it's a lot of fun. There there are a number of games that I've played, well, a small number of games that I've played that do, that I enjoy the dice mechanic in them for various reasons. Whether it's Madeira, which is kind of a dice allocation game. Uh, right. This, which is a like a dice selection game, and then drafting, or, or dice drafting, right? Trois, very similar in that respect, and yeah. also different, but a game in which I really enjoy the dice mechanic in Castles of Burgundy. So those are four examples, and I put Signore in with those that do it right and bring something exciting and enjoyable to that mechanic. Absolutely, man. You know, go ahead and take that six. It's free. <laughs> but you're pretty darn close to 13 already. So, speaking of the dice, though, something that I noticed, and I don't know if this is me coming from a casino background, but, oh my god, I hate the dice that are in this game. I hate the actual numbers that are on, like, oh. on the dice. I want pips. Dice should have pips. It's just... <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but that really bugs me about it. So if when I get a copy, that should be a hint. When I get a copy, it will I will be replacing the dice with pips. Interesting. Hey, I like building up my tableau with the helpers, man. That's that's a nice little engine, and uh, I get extra actions. That's pretty cool. Agreed. I mean, I, I could parrot what you just said, but yes, that that goes into because it costs money to to build those helpers, but. Um, 
money's tight in this game. At least it is for me, man. I'm I'm always uh, skirting bankruptcy. It seems I was until last game. Uh, I had moments. It kind of ebbs and flows. Uh, it's it's tight until it isn't, and then it's flush until it isn't. Because if you're if you're <laughs> flushing money, you're going to spend that money, and all of a sudden, oh, maybe I didn't. Maybe I spent too much. Maybe I shouldn't have spent and got that four point or four dollar helper instead of that three dollar helper. It's very, very well balanced, I feel like. This game could be a little AP-inducing, too. A little? With dice disappearing, you can't really plan fully, but you can sort of plan. You know there's going to be a red die, but if you really want the two and I take it, well, sure, there's still a four there. Yeah, and, and just weighing through all that, really, it can cause some players to grind down a bit. Every game that I've played of this so far... That has been a bit of an issue. Even players yeah. that don't have a lot of AP, it it really is AP inducing. So just yeah. go into that into the game knowing that. So on a related note, I don't feel like a seventh turn is necessary in this game. Plus, combined with the AP, seven turns is just too many. Thank God there's a variant for six. Agreed. I I play I played the game a couple of times uh, with the variant without. And I got to be honest that all my plays have been four player thus far. And with four players, I don't see a reason to play more than six rounds. Now, I know that uh, Paul Grogan has said something along the lines of of cutting off the final round and putting the two bonuses together uh, for the mm-hmm. for the final round or what would have been two rounds. We played right. it the other way. And I'll be honest, I liked it this way to where you cut off the first round and keep right. rounds two through seven uh, intact. And that's the official variant. And I think that played perfectly for four players. Now, I got to tell you, though, I, I'm pretty interested in Paul's variant, though, because it still leaves that first round on where it might be important to get a, a son married off. But it then it just it just combines the last two rounds. So you're still playing six, but there's seven tiles to be. Uh, adjudicated i guess right and, and my only concern and th- this is just speculation is does it make that last round bonuses too important that you yeah maybe so and so I haven't tried it and so because of that maybe it, it removes some strategy from that last round because it would be so punitive to not to miss out on the bonuses in that last round that everybody has to keep it under 13 unless you take the one rule breaker that allows you to go over. Therefore, maybe somebody only gets two, maybe three actions in a given turn because of the die, the die roll. I would much rather cut the front end off and, and do it that way. But either way, with four players, definitely try it with the full game. But if you find it too long... I definitely would say look at one of the official variants that cuts off one of the the front the first round. So let me ask you something about this that I don't know might be controversial, which I I really think is silly if it is. I appreciate that it's historically accurate. This does not make me sexist. It's just this is the way it was. The fact that the women get married off, the men go into a career. I think it was somewhat brave of the designers and of the publisher to take on that and say, look, this is how it was, and here you go. What What do you think? Yeah, I agree with that. I think it is a little bit brave just you know, given today's wealth of communication and opinions and mechanisms in which to deliver them. Yeah, I mean, it's game. Who cares? 
Well, good segue, because there is something thematic in the game that bugs the crap out of me, and that's rolling dice to determine if I have male or female children. You don't know what kind of kid you're going to have? I hear you. There was no genetic engineering in those days, but, man, every game, everybody, somebody at least, is, oh, my God, I got too many of males or too many of females. You know, I, I just, I wish there was a variant that said, hey, split them 50-50 and roll for the odd ones or something like that. I but, completely hey. disagree. I think it's totally unnecessary and just, it, just unnecessary. I think the game plays perfectly fine and it gives you something else that you need to adjust for, which is only going to add a layer of real-world randomness that you simply aren't in control of. And I don't have a problem with that whatsoever. You see, but for me, the game is right on the border of it has too much weight and length and AP for that sort of randomness. It's right on that border. We will we will have to agree to disagree on this one then. So I'm, I'm going to rate this game. This is a very, very good game, I think, especially when pay, played with all three variants. I think the variants should have been the real rules of the game, and I really don't want to play it without the variants. Uh, it has dice. I've played it half a dozen times. I like it. I think that says something. My wife likes it, too. I'm giving this game a four. I think it's a keeper. I, too, will give this game a four, but I find it interesting that a game from the same publisher that we recently reviewed in Nippon, we also gave a four, yet there's one of these games that I'm actively searching out, and there is one that I'm actively not. The one I'm searching out is Signori. The one I'm not is Nippon. I find this a far more interesting and just gripping game than I did Nippon. I am definitely looking for my own copy of this. So some questions from the guild, but before we get to that, I got a question for me. Okay. I think Signore is heavier than Nippon, and in fact, my copy of Nippon is already gone. How do you feel about that question? Do you think it's heavier than Nippon? I do, and I also feel like, like I just said, that it's a, it's just, I get more enjoyment playing this game than I did Nippon. I'm not going to say that it's a better game, because they're, I feel like they're, they're well designed, they're very balanced, they're, they're enjoyable games, both of them. But I enjoy playing this a fair bit more than I did Nippon. Well, I will say, this is a better game for me. So, uh, do you think their strategy in Signore may lead towards one route of victory being more effective than another? For example, focusing on marrying off your females versus training and sending out your males. Now, I have limited plays, so take this with a grain of salt, but I don't think so. I've seen the book track being put to incredibly good use by your wife, Robin, but also a ton of points through training and sending out mails into careers. As of right now, I don't see any one thing that's a dominant strategy. Do you? You have more plays of it. No, I think the tipping factor on males and females would just be... You know, with females, it'd be like, how's your income? Because you need to pay money for dowry for victory points. But also, are there any bonus tiles in those last two rounds that are going to give you points for men or women? So how would you rate Signore against the rest of the WYG catalog? All right. So of the games that I've played in which What's Your Game was the early publisher, which excludes right. games like Kalis and Reef Encounter, which yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. did reprints of. Here's my ranking of them. Madeira, number one. Venus number two, Signore number three, 
And it's real close bet- between Nippon and Zanguo. Of the WIGs that I've played in order, Madeira, Vinos, Zanguo, Signore, and Nippon. Really? Zanguo above Signore? That's interesting. Okay. Oh, yeah. Where would you put Signore in relation to Trois, Grand Austria Hotel, Marco Polo, and Alien Frontiers in their similar use of dice? Does the theme hold up or do the mechanisms bleed through? Having only played Trois previously of all those that the that the the guild member asked or uh, of those that he mentioned um i like i said i think it's a solid representation of the mechanic and and he didn't mention madeira oh wait is it madeira or madeira 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 but they have uh it's a fantastic that also is a fantastic (laughs) example of dice selection and allocation and it's funny that twa gets brought up more on that later what do you think? Yeah. Uh, theme Schmeem, uh, I think I indicated I don't feel like a 15th century Italian family head here. Um, but of what you listed, Twa and Marco Polo, I've not played Grand Austria Hotel. I'd, I'd probably be give it a try. Uh, I haven't played Alien Frontier. I'd probably not give it a try. But I also like dice games, Bora Bora, Madeira, My Village, Panamax, and Castles of Burgundy. And that's Signore. I want you to be a lumberjack. I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. I sleep all night and I work all day. He's a lumberjack and he's okay. Sleep all night and he works all day. I cut down trees, I eat my lunch, I go to the lavatory. Let's talk about Lignum. Before I start the review, I wanted to give a touch of background on the game. While prepping for the show, I reached out to the designer, Alex, and asked him some questions and where the idea for the game came from. He was very gracious in his response, and I thought it was awfully interesting, so I wanted to share a little bit. The game came about from a game design competition in 2010, where folks were asked to design a game based around the four figures that ended up being in the game, which are the four foremen that travel along the path in Lignum. Alex saw them as guys with axes slung over their shoulder, and so he used that idea to delve into the history of logging a couple of centuries ago. It turns out that foresters used to work in huge, inefficient groups that tended to have too many men. Well, they learned from that and realized that smaller groups with specialized workers was far more efficient. And thus, that idea became the focal point of the game. Lignum was published in 2015, designed by Alexander Humer. Artist was Christoph Klassen, published by Mucia Spiele. It plays two to four players, and the listed playtime is 60 to 120 minutes. But at least in all of my games, you're looking at probably closer to 90 to 150 minutes. As far as availability and cost... Unfortunately, it was a very small print run from a German crowdfunding, and it's already out of print. But there are copies to be had, especially with the weak euro in the Board Game Geek marketplace, as well as overseas stores. Also, having spoken directly with the designer, he intimated that there is a, let's just say, better than not chance that this gets picked up by a U.S. publisher. Personally, I would anticipate seeing this again in print possibly as soon as this year, but more than likely 2017. So don't turn off the review quite yet. So what's going on in Lignum? 
Lignum is Latin for wood, which is aptly named since this game is all about the logging industry back in the 19th century, presumably in Germany. In Lignum, players are woodcutters competing against your fellow competing against your fellow Lederhosen sporting loggers, trying to earn the most money over the course of two years. You'll be chopping down different types of trees, having to transport those trees to your lumberyard to either be dried and put up for sale, or be processed and later sold for even more profit. Sadly, there is no pressing of wildflowers, and it's completely optional if you wish to wear women's clothing and hang around in bars. As I said, Lignum is played over the course of two years, each year having four seasons which, for all intents and purposes, are the eight rounds of the game. Spring, summer, and fall are all executed in the same way, however, winter of each year is a bit different. A round plays out as follows. The board is reseeded with 13 tokens randomly drawn, 10 of which are the same each round. Next, the six cutting areas are planted with new trees to cut, as well as seeded with varying amounts of food. Players then secretly choose one of the six areas from which they would like to cut wood for in the current season, and once everyone has chosen an area, those choices are simultaneously revealed and claimed. Then the meat of the turn begins, where, in player order, players take turn traveling around the 20 potential stops along the trail to the cutting areas acquiring tools and hiring temporary employees that they will need to cut and process the wood. Things such as lumberjacks to cut down the timber, bearers, carts, rafts, and fodder to help transport the cut wood to your lumberyards, as well as sawyers, which are gray, not brown, and saws to cut the felled trees into lumber. Also, players are going to be able to collect tasks and quote-unquote planned work in the more advanced levels of the game. As players move along the path, they may select any space forward along said path, but never backwards nor stay in the same spot. So prioritizing what to get before others jump ahead to snatch it up is paramount. After all the players have arrived at the end of the path to the cutting area, the order in which they arrive there changes the turn order for the rest of the round. Players will cut trees in their chosen area unless multiple players chose the same location, in which case subsequent players may pay to move to a vacant location to fell trees. After that, players take turns transporting their lumber via strongback bearers or carts or ship it down the river, which is far more efficient, but it takes twice as long. When the wood arrives at the sawmill, players have a chance to either sell it as a whole tree or saw it down and make it worth even more money. Once that decision is made, players use their collected saws and rented laborers to saw the wood and decide to either sell it or store it for firewood for the winter. Finally, everyone will fulfill tasks that they may have collected and chosen to either sell their wood that they put up for sale or dry it, or age it, one step along the drying path to make it more valuable to sell later on, or for those tasks that may require drier wood. In winter, there is no traveling on the path and the woodcutting is abstracted to account for the smaller amount of wood that traditionally took place during the cold and miserable winter months. So since there is no traveling on the path, players only have what they have previously collected as far as tools go and no other hired help since those are single season workers. That means they only have their own single mill worker to make do 
and they have to decide if he's going to go out and fell a couple more trees, transport previously felled trees to his lumber yard, or saw wood already in his, in his existing lumber yard. He is but one meeple, and therefore can only do one task, so choose wisely. Finally, at the end of each winter, you must feed and heat your lumber yard, you know, with all that food and firewood that you've been storing up for just such an occasion, right? After the second year, the game ends, and whomever has accumulated the most money wins. So let's talk about scalability and player counts that we've experienced. So I have five plays so far. I have two at three player and three at four player. Sadly, no two player, but it's not due to lack of interest. It's just player counts just didn't work out. Yeah, we've had some pretty big turnouts at game day. I have four plays, one with three players, three with four players. For for what it's worth, I think the scalability at three and four is both uh, just great. Yeah, and I imagine it's going to be good at two-player as well. I don't want to speak too much on that because anything we say is guessing. But scalability-wise, uh, the number, the amount of wood that comes out, everything, the, the entire game scales to the number of players. So I think it, it scales really well. As far as components and graphic design. So let's start with the components. You can tell that it's a bit of a niche project. The board is starting to show a bit of wear in the folds and and the cards are not of the best stock, but they're not bad. They're just not the same quality of say, you know, an ivory cord set of cards or whatnot. Absolutely. And and the game is um in a word, brown. But, that, <laughs> but I'm cool with that. I mean wood is brown, I, I think it fits. Alright. It has a few custom meeples, but otherwise very standard Euro meeples and of different colors and, and the cardboard discs that represent saws and, and such. Um, yeah. Those are, they're fine thickness. They're they're Yeah. I think it's, it's decent. The purple and brown meeples are a little close in some light. Uh, I've seen that actually. Right. And actually I was going to bring that up that at least in our game room, it's been a total non-issue. No one has ever mistaken that. Oh. In Over arms. at your dining room table, it is an issue. At oh, night. is it? Okay, so yeah, low yeah. light, it might be yeah. hard to distinguish because they chose the player colors to help with color blindness because the player colors themselves are orange, blue, white, and red, which may account for the worker meeples in the colors that they chose, which are they're brown for the lumberjacks, they're purple for the bearers, and gray for the sawyers. Right. So, so just be aware that the purple and brown in... Less than ideal lighting conditions can uh, can can be similar. Uh, as far as graphic design, what do you think? Uh, well, uh, the money the money sucks. The graphic design of that sucks. Play with poker chips because the money it's all the same size, all the same color, all the same design. There's just a one, two, or three, or you know, print a five printed on them, that kind of stuff. Uh, I love that the uh, boards, all of them, the player boards and the uh, game board itself are double-sided, English on one side, German on the other. It's, it's fun just to play in German once in a while. <laughs> all right. Yeah, really. Uh, the the player boards are uh, highly functional, too. The way that your lumber yard is organized, very, Everything very has a flow to it. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. What about the rule book clarity and quality, sir? Um. There were some interesting choices made here. Uh, the rule book is broken up into three rule books. Book yeah. one is set up for the basic game. 
Book two is rules for the basic game, some facts and maybe hints on what to do and what not to do. And a third book is for the advanced game and for the expert game. But here you'll also find setup info as well as, you know, for those two versions of the game. So I haven't mentioned yet, the game comes with three versions of the game. The basic game, which think of it as an introductory, it teaches you the basics of the game. But if you are listening to this show, you're probably an experienced gamer. So therefore, I would recommend just jumping into the advanced game right away. And soon thereafter, you'll probably make it into the expert game because the only difference is, is the difference between the basic game and the advanced game. It's all layers of planning. You add tasks in the advanced game. And on top of that in the expert game, on top of those tasks, you also add planned work. But as far as the rule book goes, all three, uh, there's no need for three rule books. I'm not a fan no. of, uh, of the, their choice of splitting it as they did. It requires what? too much hunting until you're used to the, what's in what rule book. Just suffice it to say that uh, one book with a good table of contents slash index would have been great. Yep. Uh, there were a few questions and ambiguities that were left for the players to guess and assume, but the saving grace here is that the designer is very active answering questions uh, in the forums on BGG, so at least there's that. But honestly, other than splitting it into three rule books, I'd say the rules were fairly laid out, save for just a couple of minor things. So Tony, fill in the blank. What makes this game light to medium heavy? Okay, so in between. So maybe a, a medium-heavy game. The lower half of the heavy scale. What about you? I put it as medium-heavy to, to heavy. So yeah, I, I right in, in between. We have some alignment there. I think so. So let's let's talk about the complexity. Yeah, rules complexity, mechanical complexity, etc. Uh, I, I have some mechanical complexity, and I want to um, state a, a few things, and I want you to fill in some blanks because I know we have some more information from the designer on some of the some of my questions here. Okay, I think that some of this game involves here's that phrase complexity for complexity's sake. I do not say that often. A sawyer needs a saw, but a woodcutter doesn't need an axe. My wagon goes away if I use it, but if I don't use it, it sticks around forever. I can collect seventeen wagons, but only four saws. I can hire 17 woodcutters and 11 laborers, but only one, maybe two sawyers. The, these things, I, I think, are just complexity, perhaps for complexity's sake. That was, those were my thoughts um, when, when a analyzing the mechanical complexity of the game. And I don't think that complexity in its own, for its own sake creates any depth. It merely creates obstacles. But more on that later, because I know that you wrote the designer, and he actually gave some feedback that's relative to what I was thinking. Right, because I, I had the same questions. Specific, there, there were two issues. I, I put issues in air quotes. But I had two things that I thematically just didn't make sense. Number one, you brought up already. Why do lumberjacks not need axes, but sawyers need saws? And the second one that I had that you didn't mention is, why do you get your choice of a piece of wood at the beginning of winter? It just seems arbitrary. However, yeah, the designer did answer. And you know what? Let me just throw that in now. Um, well, he said that sharpening an axe 
was trivial for the guys in the nineteen the, the actual lumberjacks. So that's to simulate that axes were plentiful and being able to resharpen your axe was a non-issue. That was something that just anybody could do. However, saws took a special took a, a a somebody skilled in sharpening a saw. Therefore, it was more difficult to sharpen a saw, and so therefore, that's why in the game there are saw discs that your sawyers need as opposed to not needing them. And I, I thought that, wow, that makes total sense. Okay. Yeah, it really did. And then the other thing is, what do they? why did they get for free their choice of a felled log, whether it's firewood, softwood, or hardwood at the beginning of every winter? Well, winter is abstracted. And the designer told me in his research that there was still some logging that went on in winter. It just was considerably harder and there wasn't nearly as much. And so to not get lost in the details of winter, he just went ahead and abstracted that to where, okay, here, here's a piece of wood that your guy would have gone out and felled out in the, in cutting out in the forest. But instead of traveling along a path just for that one thing, here, we'll just let you choose which type of wood. Again, that made that made a lot of sense to me. And I, I'm glad that I reached out to Alex to be able to get that because it might help people when they're learning the game at first get over those hurdles uh, for, hmm, this doesn't quite make sense. Question for you on the complexity for complexity's sake. This game really gives me a craftsman feel as far as things aren't in the order in which you would anticipate them being in. Kind of like how you have to build buildings before you get plans in craftsman. Do you get that kind of feel here as far as that it's done this way intentionally to cause you to plan more, ergo, to make it more complex just because? Yeah, but I don't want to talk about planning yet because I'm not done with complexity. Go on, sir. So, yeah, so the designer's notes actually answered some of my complexity for complexity's sake thoughts. And I want to be clear, those aren't really issues for me. They're just thoughts, you know. Um, but some of the other things are not addressed by that. I, I think what, what this creates in the game are, are just um, obstacles, not, not depth, right? Um, the obstacles are things like, hey, I can only hire one or two sawyers, but I can you know, always get up to four saws. I can go ahead and overcome these obstacles without any great insight or undue mental strain. I, c- I don't have to be short of saws when I want to saw wood. There's actually more depth in considering that I can only have two or three sawyers at most in a round not counting the the free workers I would get from the huts, of course. But sawing is the bottleneck in the game. And I think there's more depth in trying to maximize the throughput there than in counting saws and counting um, lumberjacks and and counting, uh, you know, the laborers and stuff like that. Because, hey, look, I can cut and carry as much wood that is available in the area I'm in, depending on how many other players are there, of course, but I can only saw so much. I just think those are obstacles in the game. Not and complexity, but not necessarily depth. But there is some depth there. So on to the planning. Like, yeah, I do feel the, that craftsman feel, right? Because what it is to me, because there's obstacles to go along with some depth, the planning is a puzzle type of planning. It's a deconstruction of future events. 
If I want to saw wood, I'm, I'm going to need wood. I'm going to need a sawyer. I'm going to need a saw. Let's go get those things. How do I do that? It's a puzzle. It's project management. I feel that same way in Craftsman too. It's project management. Right. I very much get a similar feel in, from that respect uh, between the games. And it's really hard not to draw parallels between the two. The game is, at its heart, all about planning. Uh, especially when you factor in the added planning for the advanced and the expert games. Um, it doesn't necessarily make the game harder. It just makes more planning necessary and therefore it requires more brain burn and more mental gymnastics to be able to plan out. And so the game, uh, if that makes sense, it's not harder, but it's harder mentally. I eh. What I think you're saying, because this is how I feel, is... There's not there's not a progression, there's not a development, there's not an end in this game. And that's a fine thing. This is a tactical game. This is a puzzle planning game. So when you're adding on those, the advanced and export rules, you're basically putting more balls in the air to juggle. The game isn't go. really harder, but your planning is a little more complex now. You, that, that puzzle, you just made the puzzle kind of harder, maybe. Oh, not kind of. I think it's definitely <laughs> harder. <laughs> Uh, and, and I do think it's a it's a fairly tactical game, right? There are some um, strategic things, like let me accomplish some tasks, because tasks are very important, as we'll talk about, I'm sure. But, you know, you're tactically choosing where to cut wood every turn based on what's there, where you think the other players might go, right? You're tactically moving around the supply path, taking the things you are going to need for this turn or maybe even the future turns, plus there might be a squirrel moment where you're like oh well if no one's going to take that i might as well that also has its repercussions of course you know nothing builds upon your past everything i've done this year um it, it's effectively gone unless i haven't used up all my wood you, you know I, i'm not well, i'm not building an engine or anything no i there agree is... that you're not building an engine but i would take i would take umbrage with the fact that everything that you're doing this year has no effect on future years because of those tasks and the planned work. Yeah, but like, and that, that's the strategy part that comes into the tactics for me. You know, there could be strategy like, and I've followed this strategy, um, at least in one of my plays, is, hey, you know what? I'm going to limit my focus from turn to turn. I'm not going to try to do everything. I'm going to try to do things this turn that are going to add to my next turn, that are going to add to my next turn. And just try to attack things like that rather than try to be, well, let's cut wood and haul wood and saw wood and sell wood every turn. You know, that I think that's important. And I think there are we're, we're starting to stray into strategy ideas here. But well, we're I talking about like, planning, sir. Sure. But I, I feel like both of those are viable for me. My planning always works backwards. Yeah. As Puzzle. soon as as soon as I have. My ta I have gained a task card or two or three. I start working backwards and trying to figure out how do I get to step Q. Um, but you can't plan perfectly for the simple fact that you don't know the order that the items are going to come out on the supply path, which I think is absolutely wonderful. And also, you don't know... If somebody is going to be desperate and jump ahead of you or, you know, what you can safely go for and what you have to take a risk on losing and how important that risk management is going to be on how important a certain item is going to be for you. So, yeah, all that goes into the planning. So, I mean, 
the planning is Lignum. That that is what this game is. So let's move on to uh, luck and random factors. Sounds good. So here I have them listed out. All right, fire. Random selection of the hut discs to go with the ten reoccurring ones that I just mentioned. The random order of the task cards. The random order of the seeding of the cutting areas, which also plays into the randomness of where the food shows up. Well, there's also uh, the winter effects are random too. Although you know what they are at the beginning of the game, but from game to game to game, it's going to be a different mix. It sounds like there's a lot of this randomness here, but I really don't feel like there's much in the way of negatives with this. And I don't feel like it, it negatively impacts the weight. And by negative, I mean makes it lighter. It's good random. Right, I agree. The only luck in the game is if you really wanted, if you were planning or hoping for a certain task card and it came out after you passed that location on the path in a given turn. Otherwise, if it comes out at the beginning of a turn, you would have had access to it. Even if that means that you would have had to have jumped past a whole bunch of stuff to get it, you at least had the option to get it. So what do you think? Do you think that the the randomness in this negatively affects the weight? Uh no, not not really, you know. The the task availability thing, you know, it, it sucks if I buy a crappy one and it gets replaced right away with a better one. But you mentioned that. That's about the only thing that uh is annoying, but the rest of the random I think is 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 fine. Okay. All right, so game length. What do you think does that impact the weight of the game at all no i don't think it's a factor at all okay and i would agree so let's just move on all right what about the getting it i think it takes a full year to get it and i don't mean a calendar year i mean a, a game year because <laughs> <laughs> you have to see the winter and uh and how the how the actions play through in winter and the upkeep once you once you pass your first winter you're ready to uh play the game agreed um i do feel like just like most any game that you and I are going to feature on the show, uh, it's going to require multiple plays to play proficiently. But I do think after half a year, uh, or I'm sorry, half a game, i.e. the first year, you're probably going to get it. All right, Tony. So we've gotten through the uh, the standard stuff here. So now let me ask you, what makes this game enjoyable and why? Well, right off the bat, one of the things that makes this game fun is quite often I get to say Hebsort. <laughs> Which is German for woodpile. Yeah, it's just fun to say. The three levels of complexity, to be to, on a serious note. I think, honestly, there's, there's no reason not to play the expert version with typical heavy gamers. Maybe the only reason to do so, as you mentioned earlier, was just to learn the game system itself and, and grow the complexity a little bit. Really, man, they add a lot of opportunity for points and planning and optimization. And I really I really dig the, the scheduled tasks and, or, and the tasks themselves. The little, they're like contracts to fulfill. Right. It, it's recipe fulfilling, fulfillment. I think those things add a lot to the game and that you should get to them as soon as possible. One thing that I that I appreciate, even though this really doesn't come into play with you or I or our group, but I think that the the listeners at large will will appreciate, is the fact that there are these three levels of difficulty in the game. They could they could bring in younger players or more casual gamers, not 
completely, but more casual gamers and just play the basic game. And once they're comfortable with that, you can always, you know, add in the tasks, which makes it the advanced game. And then maybe it'll eventually grow into the expert game. So it's almost got training wheels to your liking. You know, you can tailor the game yeah. however you want in that respect. And I appreciate that. And the fact that it doesn't add difficulty. It, like, there, there's very, very little as far as rules overhead that the three levels adds to it. It just exponentially adds the amount of planning that goes into the game, though. Yeah, absolutely, man. So, on that note, the game melts your brain. It's really... Uh, I think so. Uh, it gives it gives me that craftsman feel and, and the planning opaqueness and how far ahead you have to plan out your, your, your plans. I really think this is a serious brain burner. Well, I think melting your brain is a little overstating it. But um, it the challenge, the puzzle unwinding, it is challenging. It's and enjoyable and fun. Uh, I I like the transportation optimization, sir. For example, the wagon and the raft, and the sled doesn't suck either in the winter time. Of course, these are real money savers, and um, they're really important to success to optimize how much wood you can bring from the wood pile to the lumber mill without having to buy. Uh, and spend money Which on is additional points. laborers. Yeah, that's right. Victory points, man. You know, so these little optimizations optimizations are exceedingly important and pretty cool. I, I really like that. Is the raft, man, where you can like put the wood on the river now, but you won't get it till next turn. There's some cool stuff you can do with that. As awesome as these are to help you optimize and and be more efficient, there is extremely high competition for all these things when you're traveling along the path it, it, it is a constant risk evaluation on how important is it for me to get this thing or could i do i need to jump ahead and skip all these other things to be able to get that raft or to be able to get that cart or to get that fodder to feed my uh, oxen for the cart and i love that there's that chess match of trying to second guess, okay, I think you're, okay, you just picked up fodder. You don't have a cart. That tells me you're going to want one of these carts. So maybe I could kind of go a little bit slower along the path, knowing that you're going to stop at this cart, and then I can leapfrog ahead to be able to get something else that I value maybe equally or, or less or more than you do, but I know you have to stop because you need that cart. That little like metagaming almost within that on that is, and the fact that you do that six times every spring, summer, and fall, and it changes every single season because you don't know where the where the tokens are going to come out at. It's amazing, dude. I love that game. I love dude, that aspect. The supply path mechanic is really really neat because. Exactly what what you just said, you know, the little risk reward and and the analysis you have to put in your head. Plus, you know, oh, squirrel, can I take that? Can I? Or, or you know, that that helps. Like, I don't need that, but I might later. Can I get it? You know, and and here's the thing. That whole path has an important, often important, I should say, um, outcome to it. 
the first the first people to the clearing are the first people who get to cut wood. That's only important if you happen to be in the same woodcutting area with other players. You might want to get there first because that's going to force the other players to make sure they got a dollar on them to get out of that area. But here's here's the interesting twist. In the last game that I played, I did that strategy of I'm just going to focus on like one thing per turn. So I'm going to like cut a crap load of wood. Then I'm going to move it over here. Then I'm going to saw it. And we were playing with the planned tasks. And one of them was um, where your sawyers can can saw at twice the efficiency. So I built up a big pile of wood and sawed the hell out of it, man. But what that did on the supply path was I found that I could um, advance faster on the supply path and only take the things that I'm specifically wanting for what I'm trying to accomplish now and that I would often move leaps and leaps ahead so I could grab a squirrel here and there. And I and my goal was just to just to finish, get what I really need and get to the end of the track and then execute my 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 wood cutting or or labor or transporting or whatever it is I was doing that turn. Now, game didn't work out so well for me. I think that strategy <laughs> it needs a little more exercise, but um I, I was really digging um, the side effects of that strategy on the supply path. It was really cool. There's one other thing, though, that you may have overlooked as far as the importance of the order in which you arrive at the clearing. When you get finished with the path, when you arrive oh, yeah. there, it's not only the order in which you cut, it's it's it, but for the rest of the turn, but also the later you arrive there the earlier you go for the next turn it reverses so if you're yeah. last at the clearing you're going to be first for traveling along the path for next yeah. turn and one of the reasons it might be really really important for you to do that is something that we haven't even touched on yet and those are the huts oh man yeah the huts so these huts Amanda and I had a disagreement on this uh, earlier today when we when I was prepping and uh, finishing prep and we were talking about this and she said the the game you cannot win unless you are involved in the huts and I said I don't think that's necessarily the case they definitely make your life easier and so what we're talking about is there are every round there are 10 of the same tokens that get placed out the location of which you don't know yet but there are three additional salmon-colored tokens which have four different things on them, uh, whatever they are. It doesn't matter. Three of which go into hut construction. If you get a full set, so there's a bit of set collection here, of the three different things that you need to build these huts. At any time on your turn, you can flip them over to the backside and they become huts. And then you can allocate them to do their, their rule breakers. One of the three options is to advance your drying extra. So if you need a plus two dry, but you're you're at a point in the game to where you could only get it to a plus one, well, one of those tokens will, will save your bacon. Another one is to be able to take excess food in an area in, in a wood cutting area that is currently unoccupied, which can be a huge lifesaver to be able to help heat feed and heat at the end of winter. And the third thing is extra mill workers. So everybody has their own little one meeple in their own player color who's basically a wild. He can be a lumberjack and cut down wood. He can be a sawyer and saw it. Or he could be a bearer. 
But if you have these huts, you can put them as extra mill workers as one-time use. And all of a sudden in winter, instead of only having one dude, you have two. Or maybe in that case, like you were talking about, you have extra Sawyers in, in your gold. Or maybe you don't bother stopping there. And you can advance and squirrel and take all these other things that you weren't right. you, that you would have missed out on had you not had these workers, these extra uh, mill workers. I think the competition for those is fierce. And, it really is. And I called I called Dana a really ugly word when she went for on her. She was first action. She jumped all the way to the ninth spot to take the one thing that I needed that turn before I even got a chance. So obviously, I I should have gotten to the clearing later, you know, the previous turn because that's going that dictated turn order, and I think that's I love the fierceness of how important every single thing is, and what you're going for is still important to me, but it might not be as important. And I oh, it's amazing, dude! I love it. Well, I'm gonna fall between you and Amanda on the importance of the huts. Um, uh, they're extremely handy and very useful. I don't know if it's impossible to win without them, but it sure makes it hard to win if you don't have any. Uh, one thing I like about this game is um, I'm tight on money often, and I can still take a loan. Yeah, well, of course you like that. <laughs> Hello, my name is Tony, and I love loans. That's right. It makes me puzzle out every coin. That's part of that that planning puzzle. I have to allocate my money, dude. I have to budget myself. I've only won this game once, played it five times, and there's only been one game in which I didn't take a loan. Huh. I wonder if there's a correlation there. I don't know. <laughs> so, there, as I said, there's a bit of nastiness in the snagging of items, locations, discs, whatever, when other folks are desperate for them. And you can play your own game, but you also have to play other people's games to try and anticipate and, and for lack of a better word, grief them if possible. And by griefing, I mean, okay, I don't really need this, but I know you do. I can use it. It'll be helpful for me, but it's going to be soul crushing if you don't get it. I.e. what Dana did to me uh, in one of the games. I think that's wonderful. I love that. Absolutely, man. It um, You could be greedy at times, but... As you mentioned before, risk-reward, man. On that greedy uh, idea, I've noticed that there are there tends to be maybe one season in a game in which I just happen to lag behind because I, I desperately need you know things that are in spot two, spot five, spot six, spot seven, and everyone's just flying past me, right? And so at that point, screw it. I'll just mosey along the path and everything y'all skip. I'll just snag up. I'm in no rush. That's fine. Also on the greedy front, the secret selection of the one of which of the six cutting areas you're going to be in. Genius. Because, yeah, they you know they get restocked every turn, so the the six areas are usually drastically different in how much wood, what kind of wood, if there's any food there, and I really like. That's a risk management thing, too, because, all right, I really want that, but let me scry into the mind of my opponents here. I think Edward's going to go there, and Amanda's going to go there, and uh, I better go here, or I might take it. It's, it's really interesting. Hold on. I'll go one level deeper, and this is very poker-esque as far as how many levels are we going to go. 
you know that I know that you know that I know type thing. And so I've gotten to the point to where, okay, you guys need food. I don't need food. So you're going to go here. But then again, you both know that you both need food. And because you only split even amounts of food, instead of it being three, you might only get one. And these other spots have two food. So all of a sudden, I think that you're thinking that other people are going to go to this spot. So you're going to go to a safer location. So maybe I can go there because you're both thinking that. And all of a sudden, I get the three food. And I love that little, you know, like I said, that I know that you know that I know that you know. And then using that against the the other players. I absolutely eat that up. Yeah, often um, when the numbers are revealed, there's at least one, damn it mentioned (laughs) (laughs) so the game's unforgiving in a sense that if you fail in your plans or you misjudge how many of a certain thing you need in your planning or the desperation of another player for a certain item you very well can be punished for that but man if you succeed in your planning you get a legitimate feeling of accomplishment at least i do when when yes i i planned this out three turns ago and look at this it's playing out perfectly man that feels good are there any things about the game that are less favorable in your opinion there are some things but i gotta be honest man a lot of this is pretty nitpicky stuff all right well i there's only one thing for me so go ahead and pick your nits my friend okay nits are picked here we go i'm not super keen on the art as you said, it's very brown. Um, but the issue I have with it isn't really the the, the color palette. It's just busy. Um, and it's it's when you first look at it, it's hard to track everything. But you, you get accustomed to it. So, again, nitpicks. The woodpile card kind of seems like a throwaway choice. I mean, it's a card, you know, that, that's an integral location next to your player board it just it's a just make the player board bigger (laughs) yeah or something i mean i'm sure it was a cost-cutting measure whatever but it just really come on hey the player board if it was bigger it wouldn't fit in the box so that probably is a cost which the box is a bit of a weird shape so or size you know it's it is actually it it, so there's that all right so the next thing has nothing to do with anything that anybody listening to this is really going to care about but i feel like it needs to be brought up and that's the fulfillment and lack of communication and the crowdfunding was reprehensible i don't understand why it's so hard for publishers to realize if you communicate people will be more understanding i would not have gotten my two copies and by two i mean one for me and one for my buddy linden down in texas I would not have gotten my copies of the game because they forgot to ship them and then they sold out. Luckily, they found a couple of copies and they shipped them to me. There are other people that still have not gotten their copies and it's been coming up on a year for this. That is unacceptable and just pisses me off to no end that how do how does that happen? That's a case where the publisher slash fulfillment house, whatever, failed at the um, deconstruction of future events puzzle planning game. Seriously. That is just the distribution of the games. So. Yeah, so so that obviously is, is, is a point of contention. But I will say this. 
it did not factor one bit into my review of the game, my feeling and enjoyment of the game. It just pissed yeah. me off in the in the interim. That's all. All right. So, what's your one issue other than the the one I brought up about the uh, the task card being mandatory? The winter upkeep. I love upkeep. This upkeep just seems a little tacked on and a little off. The amount of food that I need isn't attached to anything that I do. It isn't related to the number of people I have or have hired or anything like that. The card says I need seven food and five wood, so I guess I'm going to set aside seven food and five wood during the course of the year. Um, I can understand the burning of the wood, though. I guess in my mind I can say, hey, if the winter card requires six wood versus four wood or whatever, it just must be just a, a colder, colder winter. winter. Right, right. But the whole thing just seems, uh, I don't know, unnecessary, but could have been other ways to uh, consume my resources than a tacked on upkeep. But I, I, anyway. do, I do think it's an important thing to have, um, but I can yeah. see what you're saying because food literally has no other function other than yeah. to throw it away at the end of winter. Right. Totally viable point you make here. I agree wholeheartedly. That said, it is mandatory for it to be there. Well, like I said, uh, there could be other ways perhaps to uh, sure. consume resources, some other purpose for them other than a, a disjointed, other than the burning of wood at least, um, upkeep. All right. So I think we've, uh, I think we've dissected it pretty well. Uh, you want to yeah. kick off the summary, sir? After playing Lignum twice, I was ready to move on, man. I want to put this game up for sale and play something else. Then after the third game, it grew on me. Then a fourth game, and now my copy's not for sale, dude. I like this game. The game rewards good planning and good execution. There are no catch-up mechanisms in this game either. If you like a heavy, complex planning puzzle, then you're going to like this game. And I don't feel that it's dry or dull either, even though your wood dries. (laughs) With me, this game really began to chop wood, if you'll pardon the pun. It feels a lot like Craftsman, as we've mentioned, in terms of how the complexities of the planning puzzle need to be worked out. But I actually, I feel that it has a bit more of that than Craftsman has. Uh, my rating, dude, I, I, I struggled here with my rating. Is this a four? Is this a five? Is this a, is this a four? Is this a five? I'm going to give it a five. I, I don't give oh, a lot of fives. Wow. Tipping that from the four to the five based on the game itself convinced me to keep it after I was ready to sell it. Also, I'm likening it to Craftsman, a comparable game of puzzle difficulty. That game is a favorite. So I guess now I need to teach Robin how to play Lignum. Good stuff. I'm, I'm really surprised that you're rating. Pleasantly surprised, but surprised. It took me a long time, dude, to work that out in my head and feel good about it. I've been there many, many an episode. So for me, I love planning complexity. Complexity for complexity's sake, however you want to word it, I don't care. I enjoy the puzzle nature of Lignum. I originally backed this game hoping it was decent, expecting it to be, eh, whatever. Because, let's face it, not a lot of not a lot of logging games out there, and I dug the unique theme. You know me, I like unique themes. But I gotta be say, uh, I gotta say that the the crowdfunding gaffes notwithstanding the game you could not pry this game from my collection 
for unless it's an obscene amount of money. I am very, very, very happy to have this in my collection. And I, even after having played this to prep for the show, I cannot wait to get it back to the table again. So for me, Lignum, easy five. Easy five. Uh, I I never considered it as a Hall of Fame game. And it never, it never thought that it would be a, a six. But at the same time, if you look at the... the Games on a pile of games that we've rated fours? Hell no, this ain't a four. You kidding me? That makes it a no-brainer to me. And one thing I want to add on here, to piggyback on what you said about after the first two plays, for me, after the first play, I was like, eh, yeah, it's it's all right. Yeah, kind of a bummer. But we had planned on reviewing it, and so we're like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna power through some more plays. But dude, after my second play, I was like what was I thinking after my first play? This is fantastic. I'm an idiot. This is great. And here you go. It's now a five and cemented into my collection. So that's Lignum. There were two Ask the Elephant questions from our guild that we should address here, sir. And um, the first one, tell us, Edward, about being kidnapped for a year, but... Before you answer this, I just want to make sure you're not going to tell the listeners about that aliens and flying saucer from Andromeda thing, right? It wasn't that kidnapping? No, that was the secondary kidnapping. No. Oh, okay. Like okay. No, um, where this comes from is I was love spreader of the week last week or week before, whatever. Make sure you wear protection. You have to do two truths and a lie, uh, three questions. And one of the questions I, I put was that I was I was kidnapped for about a year and wasn't reunited for my parents until after that. Um, and a lot of people guessed that that was false. A lot of people hoped that was false. Unfortunately, it is true. So um, as you guys know, I don't mind y'all getting to know me. I kind of want that because uh, I don't want to be known as just a reviewer. I'm like, hey, I'm this person that happens to review games. So with that said, when, um, I had a I had a bit of a rough childhood. Uh, when I was nine years old, um, my mom and uh, what would become my stepdad uh, were married, and my biological father was a terrible human being. My first memory of my life was my dad beat my mom, and I literally do not have a single pleasant memory of my biological father, and so that's why. For those that don't know, that's why I don't like being called Ed, because I was named after him, and hence why I prefer Edward, for those that not care. Anyway, uh, my mom and I were hiding out in Oregon uh, from Ed, and he somehow tracked us down, and one day he showed up at the house where it was me, my mom, my stepdad, and my stepbrother. And long story short, I was nine years old and my parents gave me an option. I could, they brought me out into the living room in front of all of them and said, okay, you have a choice. As a nine-year-old kid, you can live six months with your mom, or I'm sorry, you can live full-time with your mom, you can live full-time with Ed, or you can do six months, six months. Who gives their nine-year-old kid that, that decision? Are you kidding me? Long story short, I was... I didn't want to hurt anybody. I didn't want to upset anybody. And so I just said six months, six months. So a day or two later, um, I flew back to Dallas, Texas with Ed. 
And apparently they had an agreement that I would call my parents, you know, at least once a week and we would stay in Dallas, Texas. Um, a year later, we had gone from Dallas, Texas to Jacksonville, Florida, to New York City, to Las Vegas. And I wasn't allowed to call my my parents while I was there. But my Ed kept giving me money. I didn't have to go to school. I was basically just a kid in playland. So it never even occurred to me that I'm not calling my parents. And so a year goes by and finally my parents hi had hired a private uh, investigator to track us down. They finally found us, and a couple days later, I was on the uh, on a plane trip back to my parents, never to see Ed again. Next thing I uh, uh, that was when I, I had turned ten years old already, and he ended up dying uh, when I was fifty when I was sixteen years old. And good riddance, I say that as far as I'm concerned, the only good thing that Ed ever did on this earth is put me and some of my siblings on this earth. Other than that, he can rot in hell. So yeah, so there you go. That's that's it in a nutshell. So maybe that's TMI, and if it is, I apologize, guys. But it got asked, and I told you guys, I will answer it just about anything you guys ask. So there you go. Rough stuff. You turned out okay, my friend. Yeah, I'm, you know, and, and that's, that's, that's why I don't mind talking about it, because I feel like... I've overcome that and I'm not yeah. I'm not the man or the person that he was and I'm okay with that. Good job. Cool. Last question. Mombasa, is it on the playlist? Well, yeah, but we have too many other things on the playlist, so <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. So Yeah. And you know, we acquire new things and we want to play those things, you know, like like for example I, I got cable car, so we played some cable car. You know, you got X, Chad got Y. We play X and Y. You know that nature of the beast. But that said, you're still keeping Mombasa, right? Oh hell yeah! I'll never right. Part well, that. not just for sentimental reasons, because Niels both. It's okay. a good, good, really good game, and yeah, Niels. Yeah. So cool. Rock on. How do people get in contact with Heavy Cardboard? First off, our website heavycardboard.com. We're super active on Twitter at Heavy Cardboard. Facebook, Heavy Cardboard. Email us. We love hearing from y'all. Contact at heavycardboard.com. Last but not least, BGG Guild number 2044. Come join the conversation. Heavy Cardboard thanks the great people at Game Surplus for their sponsorship of our show. They have an awesome reputation and a fantastic inventory of games. Their tagline is the home of great games at great prices. So check them out at www.gamesurplus.com. You can reach them via email at games at gamesurplus.com. And tell them heavy cardboard sent you. All right. Well, um, let's see. We talked the hell out of Lignum. I, I think that was uh, I think that was pretty good. A lot of fun. I hope the listeners enjoy listening to it. Yeah, I hope so. Cool. So we'll catch you guys in a couple of weeks. And it's funny. Somebody had asked, had mentioned Twa earlier, and we decided that's going to be the next game that Heavy Cardboard yeah. reviews. So going a little old school in some medieval dice mechanic. Twa. Cool game. See you, everybody. <laughs>